Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you are just pulling into work or have somewhere else you got to run off to, can't listen to the show live, remember that you can always go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, download and subscribe to Detroit Today, and then you can listen to the show whenever and wherever you want. It's one of the things that uh, we do to make it easy for you to participate here on Detroit Today. Today, I wanted to spend the entire hour talking about a subject that I think is pretty difficult to talk about sometimes in America, and that's the subject of privilege, and in particular, racial privilege, white privilege. It's a word or it's a phrase that often starts an argument in our cultures, often gets people really defensive or very angry about the very, very suggestion that race conveys privilege in America, not just historically, but today in 2017. A few months ago on the show, a caller suggested that black privilege was a problem that we needed to talk about and that was a problem that we weren't talking about here on Detroit Today. And I can remember that my reaction was absolutely instant to that caller. I was angry at the idea that black privilege exists in a country founded on the idea of black inferiority on the idea of blacks as property, on the idea of blacks as less than human. And I pushed back pretty hard against that caller and said, listen, there's no such thing as black privilege. What you're talking about doesn't exist. But then a few weeks later, I was sitting at the honor ceremony for my son at the school he attends. Now, he attends the same school that I attended when I was a kid here in Detroit. And one of the things I can remember really clearly about attending that school back in the early 1980s was that there were a lot of kids at that school whose parents had gone to our school, whose fathers had gone to our school, not just their fathers. In some cases, their fathers had gone to our school. Their grandfathers had gone to our school. Their great-grandfathers had gone to our school in some cases. And I can remember thinking then about the kind of advantages those kids had over those of us who were the first generation of kids to attend our school and our families. They knew things about the school that we didn't. They understood the sort of ins and outs, not just of the formal structure of the school and the academics. They knew what the culture of the school was before they even got there. And I can remember thinking they had this tremendous head start on the rest of us. And Back in the 1980s, there was a racial dynamic to this. The kids whose parents, the kids whose grandparents, the kids whose great parents, grandparents had gone to our school, they were all white kids. And it was African-American kids like me who were just beginning to sort of fill the corridors of that school who were new to that experience. And I thought even then, there's a racial dynamic here. This is a form of privilege. But then again, just a few weeks ago, I sat at the same school with my son joining the honor society at this school, and I looked around. And a lot of the other parents whose sons were joining the honor society were like me. They were my classmates 
at that school. And a lot of them were African-American, more so than maybe even the number of white parents who had gone to that school. And I sat there and I thought to myself, well, this is a form of privilege, isn't it? I mean, my son goes to that school and he knows all of the ins and outs. He understands the culture of that school because his dad went there and has been talking about that school ever since he was born. Talk about sending him to that school, making sure that he has the same opportunity than I do. And I'm sure that's true of many of the other African-American students there now whose dads were in school at the time that I was. And so then I started to think about that form of privilege. What is that? It's an advantage, no question. It's an advantage that my son has that a lot of other kids in that school, kids whose parents didn't go there, absolutely don't have and couldn't get at this point because uh, it's too late. They may be able to pass it on to their kids, but they're not part of this generation of advantage there. And so I started to think about what privilege means. Of course, that is not remotely the same as racial privilege, which is part of the founding texture, the founding fabric of this nation, and is still something that shows its, itself not just in big ways like this, but in very small uh, instances, relationships, uh, interactions in our society. I'm not saying by any means that these are the same things, but I am starting to think about what privilege means in a broader context and whether privilege over time is going to look different here in the United States of America. We will always, I believe, live with the effects, the lasting effects of white privilege, of racial privilege, of inequality that was baked into our founding and, of course, still lives with us, visits with us today. There's no question about that. But are there other forms of privilege that might start to bump up against racial privilege? Are there other forms of privilege that might challenge racial privilege, challenge the position that it has as the foremost means of advantage in American society. I want to spend the hour today talking about that, talking about various forms of privilege that we see around us, that we see affecting our lives, and whether we're willing, whether we are white or black or rich or poor, to really talk about how privilege affects our lives. How do we see privilege unfold around us? And we, of course, want to hear from you, the listeners. What does privilege look like in your life? Do you acknowledge the privileges that you have, the advantages that play out in your life? Or do you believe that there isn't much privilege in America, that America is a meritocracy, a place where everybody's got to sort of make their way on their own, and there aren't advantages, unfair advantages that exist? 313-577-1019 is the number to join that conversation. 313-577-1019. Talk to us about privilege, how it looks in your life, how it looks to you in the nation, whether it's something we just have to live with and negotiate around, or is it something that we can push back against? Is it is something that we can reframe in a way that tilts a little more toward fairness 
than it does now. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work your comments into the conversation. And joining me for the hour to have this discussion or to help lead this discussion is Lester Spence. He is an associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. He is a native of the Detroit area at like me, he is an alum of the University of Michigan. Uh, Lester, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, what's up, man? It's good to be here. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on to have this discussion, Lester, is uh, is our common experience. So you and I, uh, after I went to this high school, where I now send my son, uh, you and I were students at the University of Michigan at the same time in the late 1980s. Uh, and uh, you and I were uh, on campus at a time when I believe, historically, the largest number of African-American students were being admitted to that, to that university. There was a real effort uh, underway to, to correct past injustices, I suppose, if you will, or to create future opportunities. Uh, and there were, uh, there were a lot more African-American kids on campus, certainly, than there are now. You and I go on to graduate from the University of Michigan, and we've both had uh, a lot of opportunities in front of us, a lot of success. You are a professor at Johns Hopkins University, one of the most elite institutions uh, in this country. Uh, I'm a journalist here in Detroit with uh, certain advantages that come along with that. And I think things look different for our children than they did for us in terms of the way that privilege or advantage plays into their lives. And again, of course, I'm not saying that they don't suffer from the effects of white privilege, that they're not disadvantaged by uh, the racial bias that's existed in this country since its beginning, but that it looks different. It looks different now than it did even when we were uh, students at the University of Michigan or before, that, that there is something, uh, there is something transformative, I suppose, about the nature of opportunity that they are experiencing. And I wanted to have you be part of this conversation to talk about how that looks from your chair. Uh, you're somebody who thinks an awful lot about race and racism in this country, about the history of race and racism in this country, but you're also somebody who has overcome an awful lot of uh, the barriers that you and I had in front of us. And our children, I think, see the world uh, through a different opportunistic lens. So I want to give you a chance up front to talk about how that looks from your point of view. Uh, well, um, first of all, it's funny because uh, the most, um, most really interesting aspect as I think about you, um, you know, for the listeners, is that you're not just a, a black man, you're not just a journalist in Detroit, you're a Pulitzer Prize winning black man, right? So... I don't know how many African-Americans have won the Pulitzer. I tried to do a quick uh, Google search, <laughs> but it hasn't been that many, right? Uh, similarly, uh, with me, and I don't talk about this a lot, uh, I am the first, I think I'm the first African-American to go through tenure, at le in a political science at least, at Johns Hopkins University. And Johns Hopkins has probably one of the two or three oldest political science departments in the country. Yes, right. Uh, there is an African brother who went, who went before me. So I'm not the first black man, but I'm the first African American. And, you know, and the way we live it 
is, you know, it, it's, it differs depending on the individual. But I think in both our cases, the way we live it is kind of, uh, a, we, we acknowledge it. But, um, you know, at least in my case, I just tend to carry myself as if that's kind of not the case. You know, so if I was, you know, if I was somewhere in Baltimore just hanging out, um, people kind of know me. Because people kind of know me, they know who I am. But if people didn't know me, you know, they wouldn't have any idea about what I did. That's right. right. Um but at the same time, it translates into certain types of uh, in, in, into a structural position that gives us cer- certain benefits. So I'll give you a random and trifling example. Um, last Saturday, um, at about 1 a.m., I drove in the middle of the night to Boston for 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 kind of personal reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I got stopped by the police while in Baltimore. The only thing I was concerned with when the Baltimore police officer stopped me. The only thing I was concerned with was whether the ticket he gave me would prevent me from going to Boston. Yeah. At no point in time did I was I in fear of my life. At no point in time did I do the hands on the dashboard, <laughs> you know, make sure that every sees. I didn't do I didn't even think about any of that stuff. Wow. Right. That's how that that's one way that translates into my personal behavior. But then when you look at this structurally and you extend it a bit, uh my son Attends the University of Michigan. Yes. Um, you know, he, he is a legacy. There are now so many legacies at the University of Michigan, black legacies. I didn't know that many black kids who had. I knew one sister that I could think of whose, uh, whose mom went to Michigan when we were, you know, uh, right. in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But now there are, there are so many of us. It's like you look on the Facebook, Facebook feed. It's just like it's, it's almost like it's all of us. And that actually has that has political consequences, um, and that has economic consequences for what we think of as what black people should do, and what we think of as the solution to deeply to deep racial issues. So I know that um, the way that show is articulated is kind of an individual notion about how privilege works on us individually, and how we kind of wrestle. Like, how do I wrestle with being uh, one of the few tenured? Uh, black professors at Hopkins, <laughs> right. right? And that that's important, but it's also important to think about what how that translates into our politics, whether it's, it's the issue of policing, or whether it's the issue like I'm ar- having arguments now about whether Obama should take this four hundred thousand dollar check. I saw I that on Facebook. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so, so it, it translates. And do you do you feel like? Do you feel like th- this change and this change in perspective that you and I have experienced because of the lives that we've been able uh, to to lead does does it have an effect on white privilege? Does it have an effect on original privilege in this country? Does it have an effect on other kinds of original privilege? Uh, I didn't even mention in the opening uh, the kinds of gender privilege that still exist in uh, in our culture. Uh, does does this sort of change of opportunity change those things along with it? Well, um, okay, so it's, it's it's complicated, but but here's a way to think about it. Um, for the first time since we've been recording data, um, life expectancy for a segment of whites is actually decreasing. Uh huh. Um, that's never ever happened. Be- I mean, that's never happened before. Before this moment, every segment, whether you were broke, broke, you know, living in e-course, no, not going to e-course, or whether you were wealthy, wealthy, living Gross Point, 
um, your life expectancy increased. Now, for the first time, that kind of that e-course down river segment, that kind of rural Michigan segment, what, their, their lifespan is actually decreasing. Every other population is increasing. Right, every even including black folk right. from Inkster. I grew right. up in Inkster, <laughs> not not in Inkster. I grew up in Inkster. Uh, our life expectancy is increasing. Right, their their more their life expectancy is decreasing. Their mortality rate is increasing. Right, there are structural dynamics that create that. Now, and and one of the I think one of the things that's happening is that the way our government works, we we've peeled the welfare state back so far that um that it's really really hitting you know it's been hitting black people i think black people may be kind of used to it but it's really really hitting whites who are disconnected from the economy right now and at the same time there's this thin sliver of black folk you know black folk like you and i who gain a benefit you know who are actually benefiting even with somebody like trump in office right like i expect my income to increase i expect my opportunities to increase even with trump in office right so it's not so much how uh black privilege to the extent it exists affects white privilege at at least the way you articulate it what it really is is how have the changes in the economy made it where certain black people you know black people like you and i can gain benefits and then how does the fact that we're able to gain those benefits affect our desire and our political will to change the economy so that more people can benefit? Right, right. Can you, can you use those advantages, those opportunities to change reality, not just for yourself, mm-hmm. but for everybody else? Yeah, yeah. And then real quickly, within black communities, the fact that we're able to make it makes it likely, although it's not in the case of, uh, it's not the case for either you or I as individuals, but increased black class mobility for that thin segment makes us more likely to say, oh, okay, I did this, you should be able to do that, that too. Even though, you know, the, the, the welfare state or even the public school system or even the private school system doesn't exist the way it used to. The Catholic high school I was able to go, uh, I went to, uh, to school um, I graduated from doesn't even exist anymore. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Lester Spence, an associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, we are talking about the notion of privilege, racial privilege, economic privilege, other kinds of opportunities that are uh, that define the way we live, the way we relate to each other in the United States. Uh, And of course, we want to hear from you. Is privilege changing? Is the notion of privilege changing? Is racial privilege, which is one of the original privileges here in the United States, is it being affected by these other forms of privilege that we see unfolding. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Zach on Twitter uh, says, regarding changes in white privilege, racism is like a Cadillac. They bring out 
a new model every year. They're quoting Malcolm X. <laughs> Zach, thank you for that. That's nice. For that reference, right? <laughs> a reminder that it is not going anywhere. It's just going to look a little different now than it did in the past. Uh, well, go ahead, well, Lester. <laughs> I get that. And that's actually dope. But the, but the challenge with that is that it kind of reproduces the idea that it's not, that, that it, it, it just changes, it just kind of changes color, right? Like, yes. like maybe it's fuchsia and then it turns, you know, yellow, or maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's an Escort uh, 94, and now it's an Escort 2017. <laughs> I don't even know if they make Escorts anymore, but you know what I mean. Right. You know what I mean. The, thing, the, the reality is, is that there is nothing in, in the physical or biological world that doesn't evolve, change, and mutate, right? And, sure. and, 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 and actually more complicated than that, that, you know, because we can easily say, oh, well, racism mutates, right? It's like with human society, there, are, there is no structure that just kind of maintains the same core and then mutates. I mean, it just, it just doesn't work like that. And, and the challenge with articulating racism like that is that you, um, you ignore that we can ignore the fact that it actually does. There are ways in which our nation is less racist. There are ways in which our nation, um, you know, racism kind of rises and falls over time. And I, and I, can, I can imagine with a lot of labor, a, 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 a nation existing that actually doesn't have any racism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about privilege. We've got lots of folks lined up on the phones who want to participate in this conversation. No surprise there. Devin in Waterford, Mike in Fraser, Tom in Northwest Detroit, Wink in Southfield. We will get to you. Stay with us and stay with us on those phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Lester Spence. He is an associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University, a native of the Detroit area. We are talking about privilege, the idea of privilege, the very idea of racial privilege versus other kinds of privilege. How does that look in people's lives today? Is the nature of privilege changing because of changes in our economy or changes in our culture? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter. And hashtag Detroit today, and we'll try to work your comments into the conversation. I want to go back a few months here and play a clip. Uh, I referenced a phone call that we got uh, a few months ago when we were talking about uh, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick uh, being shunned by the NFL for taking a knee during the national anthem as a sign of protest over the way black people are being treated in America. Caller Matthew, who is a veteran and disagreed with Kaepernick, but believes in his right to kneel, he had this observation from his perspective on the world. For me, 
I, most of my context, I'm white, is African-American. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of black privilege, and I never hear that talked about. It's like there's a... Black privilege. There, yes, there is. Like when I was going to join the military, if I had been <laughs> black, I would have been an officer. Um, over and over again, you can't say, you can say one thing, but if you're white, you can't say another. And, and I see it over and over again. There's this move, because you're white, it's a racist move. You're supposed to feel bad because of your position instead of doing what you can to further the world. But it, it's, it's like there's a racist move to demean white people. And it really bothers me because it would be the same way if I'm demeaning racist. black people. To me, white privilege is I need to feel bad for being white. And I just feel like that is such a yeah. racist viewpoint. Tell, yeah, I, really I mean, Matt. Do. Okay, so that was Matthew uh, talking about how he sees the issue of privilege. Uh, I think if you can, uh, anyone who listens to the show can hear in my voice the the frustration uh, with with what he was saying and sort of the astonishment, I guess, uh, at the at the utterance of that phrase, "black privilege." Uh, Lester Spence, I want to give you a chance to to address what Matthew was saying there. This idea that that privilege works both ways in his mind that that there is there is such a thing as black privilege he's not the only one who's ever said that to me yeah um now i've actually heard the quote in context it's it's, um you know so i'm gonna go i'm gonna uh, yeah so you've had um earl henderson on your show before another detroiter absolutely scientist yeah uh, someone else who was also at the university of michigan with us when we were there in the late 1980s yep yep who made who made the way for us and in fact it's important to know that at least we're uh, uh the group the group of us that came in like a lot of us that came in what 87 88 89 we're the direct result of black student activism so black students like earl henderson actually fought for us yes. i think he has the best kind of working example of 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 kind of uh, racism, white supremacy. What he uh, what he talks about, he talks about racism as if it were a car, right? He's like everybody's got you know something like racism exists. This kind of a, a you as a product. Once the concept of race is actually created, it's possible for everybody to kind of be racist. Racist, but the type of racism black people can kind of you is kind of like a car that doesn't quite work, right? Yeah. Where, whereas Whereas in general, because of the unique history of this country, whites have like a working Cadillac. So when you're talking about the concept of black privilege the way that the, that the white brother talked about it in his quote, it's like, yeah, you can imagine um, there, are, there are instances in which, the, in which whites are actually, to- are actually silenced um, by blacks, mm-hmm. you and the and the notion of white privilege is used to silence them. Um, I've seen it happen in very specific activist spaces, uh, particularly in the wake of Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street. Doesn't happen happen in all spaces, but it but it happens. It happens in some college campuses too. But but analytically, those instances. Are, are are kind of a uh, are, are, are are kind of a drop in the bucket compared to the the individual the individual level and um, I'm teaching uh, the last chapter few chapters of Black Power today and Stokely Carmichael actually can, comes up with the concept of institutional racism when you take individual racism and institutional racism um, together. 
those two dynamics really, um, <laughs> uh, excuse the term, trump all, <laughs> all other all other instances, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, so it's a conversation that we should have, and we shouldn't be we sh- we should actually be able to have it as rationally as we can. But but th- there is no. You know, while there's definitely class privilege within black communities, again, people like me and you have far more access to resources than uh, working class black folk, and then some working class white folk. But just but but comparing the structural advantage we have and that thin slice of us as black folk have compared to whites, there really isn't a comparison. Yeah. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's go to Mike in Fraser. Mike, welcome to Detroit today. Hi. Uh, hi, thank you. Yes. Um, I was uh, a poor white kid, uh, raised in Detroit until uh, very recently moved, and uh, zip code 48205, Osborne, St. Raymond's. Uh-huh. And I was raised to respect all genders and races. Um, I have relatives who um, marched uh, in the MLK parade uh, in 63 in Detroit. Um, it was once all white, and then it slowly turned to black. I was like a one center at the end. In the end, I moved out because I uh, occasionally I'd have stones and rocks thrown at my car, at my house. I got nothing fancy. I'm a very working class, factory rat kind of person. I get along with everybody, no Nazi flags or Confederate paraphernalia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I've been called a white bee, you know, rhymes with witch, uh, white devil, and a cracker. I can't even, I couldn't even walk the streets without sometimes getting racial slurs hurled at me, and sometimes even stones and rocks. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so for you, Mike, that is that a form of Opposite privilege. I mean, do you do you do you see that as a form of black privilege that those people were able to treat you that way and and essentially force you out of out of your neighborhood? First of all, I want to say yeah. There. First of all, I'm really sorry about any racial discrimination in the in the past and even today sometimes for for all races. But yeah, I do, and I also grew up. Grew up uh, on sometimes on ADC and welfare uh, because my parents both had medical problems. Right. So I know what it's like. And then I've had one time I had a black woman look at me and says, "Well, you wouldn't understand." She, I mean, she didn't know me, but she saw my white skin sure. and she made a comment like that. Yeah, Mike, I, I really appreciate your calling and uh, and sharing that perspective. Uh, and your experiences is really uh, is a really important aspect to this conversation. Uh, Lester Spence, uh, what what Mike's saying there reminds me of something else I hear pretty frequently, which is you talk to a lot of people, uh, a lot of white people, and they don't feel privileged. Yeah. They don't have experiences that to them suggest that their skin color gives them any sort of advantage in uh, in our society. And I think uh, Mike's story there about being treated differently because he was white uh, is sort of an, it's one of the things that reinforces that, that idea. Yeah. I mean, so one way to think about it is if you were to ask most folk uh, in the metropolitan Detroit area, when Detroit's population 
started to decrease. The vast majority of them, white and black, would, uh, I'm sorry, it's not, uh, that's 20, 20th century language. <laughs> <laughs> the vast majority of them, whether they're white, they're black, Latino, um, or from the Middle East, or, or Asian American, uh, would point to 1967. Yes. Right? Um, but you and I both know that, that, that the moment that the population started decreasing was somewhere in the early 50s. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Population in the 1950s, like 1.9 million population in 1960 is something less than that, maybe 1.4, maybe 1.3, right? Um, What goes on there? What goes on there is the government, actually, uh, the federal government uh, passes the Interstate Highway Defense uh, Defense Act and then um, also gives heft to the GI Bill. Those Those two bills put a lot of resources into suburban development, give uh, a lot of folk the ability to buy homes, provide it there in the suburbs. That's how the GI Bill worked. Um, but blacks were actually prevented from taking advantage of those. Yes, excluded from those programs. Right. They, they were excluded, right? Um, this uh, suburban development was pretty much white by definite, like legally, right? Um, you couldn't even, if you were a real estate agent with a license, you couldn't. You would have your license taken away from you if you actually tried to uh, try to um, sell uh, to black people to move into a white neighborhood. You had, they had to come up with another na- another type of real estate agent, a yeah. realtor yeah. for people who did that. Right. Um, so how does this play out in individual life? My aunt and uncle were probably one of the first black families to move, in the south, move in, into Southfield in the 70s. Southfield, uh, Southfield doesn't actually become quasi-integrated until the late 70s, early 80s, right? So there's this whole, 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 um, there's this whole wealth structure sure. off of real, real estate that is, in effect, raced. Yes. Right. If you're white, you could take you could. If you're white, you could take advantage of it. If you're black, you could only, you would only not take advantage of it. You'd actually get a penalty, right? Because we, if we were able to buy houses, we bought houses in black neighborhoods. Black neighborhoods were valued less than white neighborhoods because they had black people in them, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, with all that said, we could talk about that and say, okay, there is this dynamic where, if you even if you lived in a place like uh, Garden City. Uh, or Livonia, you'd have more wealth in your neighborhood and in your house um, if you're white than than African American middle income homeowners, right? Um, but how does that tra- But but the thing is, is we could talk about that, but people are still trying to see how this deals with their, you know, how this affects their lives, day to day lives, yeah, day to day life in a context in which. You know, it's no longer possible to get a, you know, to be, get a high school degree and get a job at Ford. It's becoming harder to put your kid into a school like Eastern Michigan, much less Michigan State or, or uh, University of Michigan. You know, our retirements are, 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 um, are, uh, are dwindling. Um, you, know, our, you know, those of us who are middle-aged, we're increasingly expected to take care of our parents and our kids, right? So all, you, you, put, all, you take all that responsibility, and it really is hard for whites to see them benefiting, yeah. right? Maybe the only way they could see it is, is in the fact that their encounters with the police aren't fraught with difficulty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, Thomas on Twitter says, privilege can be situational. However, white privilege is paramount. Being white 
doesn't cost me a thing. It's pure profit. Uh, He goes on to tweet, the clip of Matthew is an example of, quote, white fragility, the forgotten white male. Thomas, thank you for that contribution. Let's go to Devin in Waterford. Devin, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, Hi, thank you. Hey, yep, go ahead. Oh, sure. Um, I guess the the comment I wanted to share is I I had some trouble understanding this idea that uh, there's this... uh, the strong privilege for white people are that like I just naturally have things better, you know. Uh, one thing I guess I really identified with, or was easy for me to understand, was uh, the idea of nepotism, or that uh, you know, if, if some guy's the coach of a pee wee football team, you know, his kid every day is uh, playing quarterback. His kid's he's the quarterback, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, every, that makes everyone mad. Uh, yeah. If you if you ever played on one of those teams. Um, and you know, I start to, it's, it kind of stems from that in a big way, I guess what I, uh, have seen in my own life that, you know, and the things that I may or may not have gotten access to are, uh, have turned out better for me because I knew, I knew somebody exactly. That's sure. something that a lot of people I mean, are, that's another, there's no question. Idea. That's another form of privilege that, that plays a huge role. Uh, in inequality in this in this country, but but I wonder, Devin, if you were just listening uh, to the examples that that Lester Spence was giving uh, about, for instance, real estate wealth that that in the 1950s the government uh, opened up all kinds of opportunities to people uh, based on their military service, uh, in some cases uh, based on uh, development aims in in others to to be able to buy homes uh, in the suburbs to. To, to create the wealth that we see today in, in, in terms of, of real estate, and that blacks were left out of that, which doesn't necessarily accrue to uh, you getting something, for instance, you getting something that I don't have, but it is something that uh, you benefit from that, for instance, I didn't. Does that not, does that not resonate with you? Still there more uh, sure. historic pers- perspectives, I guess that uh, that I thought that was a really good uh, point. That like that's I can definitely see that being the case. I guess I was uh, trying to point to more uh, recent things that I can see have happened in right. my own life, at least, sure. or see that didn't happen for uh, friends of mine that I know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah absolutely. I, th- I think the uh, the <laughs> I think the historic perspective that has actually always you know given me something but it always seems i don't know with my education or you know with people i grew up with and whatnot i i guess hearing those historic comparisons it sometimes feels like it's not relevant to what i've seen today yeah. i suppose yeah. like it's you know back when, when people talk about the 70s or even as like people didn't have computers back then now now people have uh you think the internet basically should <laughs> you like you can find any candidate you want to do something right. if you get what right. i'm saying like you yeah. shouldn't have to choose someone you know you can choose yeah. the best guy you find on a list of a thousand no, people devin devin but, i really yeah. appreciate i really devin, you're appreciate making us feel comment. old as dirt right now yeah thank, <laughs> thank you very that's much. right thank all you. right <laughs> and we're going to take another quick break here when we come back we're going to continue our conversation about how privilege has changed over the past couple generations here in america stay with us and stay with us on the phones 313-577-1019 is the number we'll be right back on detroit today
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Lester Spence. He's an associate professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. We are talking about the idea of privilege, racial privilege, economic privilege, other forms of privilege, and what role they play now versus the role they may have played in the past. Again, on the phones, 313 313- 577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. Also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag us at Detroit Today, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Let's go to Wink in Southfield. Wink, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Uh-huh. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, I wanted to comment that uh, when I first realized I had privilege, it had nothing to do with race, really, except my brother's who were younger than I, wondered why I always got to do everything with Grandma. And I thought, <laughs> well, of course I do, because she's, I'm the firstborn, I'm named for her, and you guys aren't as much fun and all that stuff. I just, it was something I didn't realize I had and that they noticed. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I, we started discussing white privilege in our Quaker meeting, and so there was a lot more to learn. And part of that is, well, some things you know all the time, which is people's races aren't identified in books because they're presumed to be white. Right. <laughs> Reading cards are for white people. Yeah. It's the default. Right, yeah. right. And it's... you don't know it. You know, you don't, you don't realize you have it until you learn about it. It's one of those things you don't know you don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you very much, uh Thank you very much for that call, Wink. That's a great that's a great insight to add to this uh, to this conversation. Uh, let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to Detroit today. Yeah, good morning to both of you. I think you know Lester's father because we used to live. I used to live on the North End, and he lived in the same apartment building that he lived in. But anyway, you know, the first person I ever heard use the term white privilege was Bill Bond. Huh. I was invited. Oh, wow. My wife and I we were invited to a uh, it was like a dinner, and he was the invited guest. And Bill Bonds, and I'm paraphrasing, basically what he said was just this. Due to the complexion of his skin, it granted him privileges that other people couldn't get. Wow. And that's a, I mean, that's an incredible insight from a guy who I think a lot of people wow, don't think yeah. of as having yeah. great insight. Uh, for, for listeners who don't remember, Bill Bonds was the uh, the anchor on WXYZ Channel 7 here in Detroit for a really long time. Uh, pretty pugnacious personality. Uh, said things that I think a lot of people would characterize as racist from time to time. Had a really contentious relationship with uh, with Coleman Young when he was mayor. Uh, but, but, but here Tom is giving us another dimension of Bill Bonds that I at least had never, had wow. never heard about before. Th- yeah, Tom, thanks for that. Yeah, go ahead, Lester. Yeah, um... So, so here's one way to think about it. Definitely, really did. I was like 70s back when we had no computers, and I remember, <laughs> remember the 70s like nothing. So here's a here's a, a complicated way to think about kind of privilege, right? So here you and I have all this structural privilege, right? We, I mean, we have certain type of structural privilege. Not only does my son attend Michigan, like I know, you know, like I know the dean. You know, by first name, right. like I know the president, you know, like like stuff that I never imagined happening. That's class mobility. Right. But yet and still, when Baltimore had um, when Baltimore had a really bad uh, snowstorm last year, um, I uh, I had my the lock in my shed was was uh, I couldn't find the key. 
So I had my two sons. I was going to have my two sons break into just basically crack the lock and then just get my shovel out. And I was looking at them in the suburb, in suburban Baltimore, with wearing two hoodies, yeah. breaking into my shed. <laughs> Maybe not such a great idea, right? Oh, oh I, I was like, oh, no, y'all come in. And I walked, I would like walk to Home Depot. That's the reason I did that was because I was scared the police would see them and shoot them. And Yeah, that's right. That's right? right. Now, I don't have that fear for myself anymore. That is a function of, quote, unquote, black class privilege. Right. But I still had it for my kids. That's where it becomes, you know, that's, that single instance kind of shows you how complicated this stuff is. I'm, I'm imagining you haven't dealt with that with your kids yet, but you're going to, uh, well, that's right, your, your son's in high school, right? Yeah, he's almost in, he's in seventh grade, so. Oh, yeah, it's coming. starting to look, he's starting to look and sound like a the black part. man, and that's yep. going to be different for him than, uh, than the things that he's experienced before, and, and that's, that's a great example. I mean, I'm not sure I would ever ask him to break into something, because even if I owned it. Because, yeah, and, uh, and nobody has to, the only population that has to deal with that is black people. Is African Americans. Like right. no nobody else, you know, no 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 white listener in again, even an e course or something like you know, something down river where where folks are basically working class, they don't have to deal with that type of fear. They don't. Yeah. Uh let's go to Ryan on the east side. Ryan, welcome to Detroit today. Hello. Uh how are you guys doing this morning? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. So uh what I wanted to throw into this conversation is um um paternalism and how it plays a, a big part in how privilege is forced upon people. Um, we, we think about um, with the EAA and things going on with school districts in Southeast Michigan and all over Michigan in general, uh, and, you know, paternalism by definition says that I am going to do this in your best interest, even though you may not like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in doing so, you disenfranchise a lot of people and that privileges others and puts other people in a deficit. You know, we, we are looking at Detroit public schools for all intents and purposes uh, about to dissolve, just like other urban districts are around that area. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, uh, again, great, uh, great dynamic to inject into the conversation, something we hadn't really gotten to yet. So uh, thank you very much uh, for the call and those thoughts. Uh, Let's go to Ricardo in Detroit. Ricardo, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning. Uh And thank you for uh, having me this morning. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, Yeah, I just wanted to share an experience. Um, I am African-American male from the west side of Detroit, and I got a job a few years ago working as a pre-need sales counselor at a cemetery on the east side of Detroit. Um, You know, I basically had to go around, uh, I had to make my own sales calls. I had to ask ask people to let me come to their home to do my sales presentation, to talk them into uh, buying their cemetery property in advance. And I was working in an area that is now predominantly African-American, but it's a historically Polish cemetery. Okay. And they were trying to, uh, you know, reach that community and, and, you know, get more Polish families to reinvest in the cemetery. And um, I didn't want to be in pre-need my entire time there. I wanted to move into at-need where I was helping families who had a death immediately and just needed to buy property to use within the next few days. But you had to sell $10,000 
a pre-need to move into that position. Um, so, I, you know, it was very rough, but I, eventually I hit <laughs> my metrics to move into to at need. Uh-huh. And then and then shortly after that, a, a young white girl from Allen Park was hired, and she had to go through the pre-need process, and I was her trainer, so I could take her around the neighborhood and show her how the sales presentation worked. <laughs> and she expressed to me that she was absolutely frightened. She, had, she knew nothing about Detroit. She huh. was scared of the neighborhood. And, you know, she eventually, she didn't even start. She quit. And um, the manager reached out to her, and they rescinded her resignation. And they offered her the position to go directly into at need, where she didn't have to go around making the sales presentations and the process that I had to go through because of her fear of the neighborhood. And uh, what I believe is her her, her race, her, her being a Caucasian female in a predominantly... Uh, a, a very rough African American neighborhood. Right. So Th- that um, kind of accommodation being made for 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 somebody because of their fear uh, certainly has a racial dynamic to it. Uh, correct. Ricardo, correct. That's a great that's a great example of uh, the the difference between uh, the kind of privilege that 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 we see on one side of the ledger and and others. So thank you very much uh, for calling and and giving us that example. Uh, one more call here before we have to end the show. Bill in Westland. Bill, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, Stephen. How hey, are you? Good. How are you? I've got about a minute think, and a half left, Bill, but I want to. I know, you. man. Uh, your introduction at the beginning and your analysis of privilege, I thought, was outstanding. Um, I think uh, one of the things that seems to be missing in this conversation is the link between privilege and power. Uh-huh. And I think that that power is linked to, and you know better than anybody else, getting an education and a quality education because the accumulation of knowledge. Uh, opens the door for an accumulation of power. And I think that as that paradigm is changing, the power paradigm is changing because of the fact that there's a lot more education that's going on. And you and Lester are perfect examples of what that means. That's a really great great point, Bill. Uh, Lester, we've got about a minute, but I want to give you a chance to address what Bill's saying. What is the, the, the cumulative power of the opportunities that you and I have uh, how does that pass on, I guess? Uh, to yeah, so what we have basically is a system, and thanks for that. What we have is a system where politically and economically and socially, um, we've embedded this idea of merit, that people who make a lot of money, people who get a lot of accolades actually deserve them um, and did it through their hard work. Yeah. And the flip side of that is that people who are on the bottom actually deserve that position. Right. That is a function of public policy. Yes. That's a function of uh, public policy that or that uh, that shapes the way municipalities function, taxes are collected, etc. But that's also a function of ideas, right? Yes. Um, and I think what we've been trying to talk about is the way that kind of privilege is. Uh, it's kind of the ideational consequence of backbone of 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 structural uh, of structural uh, of structures that ends up making it where some people can live easily and some people can't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so the challenge for us. So the conversation about privilege is important, but there's a way where we talk about privilege where the natural solution to privilege is just more education where we where we learn to check our privilege as opposed to organizing to make it such that all populations can just can just live quality 
uh, quality lives. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great point to end the show on. Lester Spence, Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. As always, thanks for joining us. We never have enough time. I man. know. When the, next time you're in town, we will have you in the studio for this kind of conversation. Uh, always good to hear your voice. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. See you tomorrow. <laughs>